Now, if you're new around here, you may not know, but September of 2021, I will be hitting seven years of sobriety. So I take recovery very, very seriously. And it's one of my favorite topics to talk about. Now, I can shower you with all the different statistics surrounding indigenous and native people when it comes to addiction, alcoholism, and all the ins and outs of it. But that's not what you're here for. We're here for the nitty gritty, the hard conversations, the important conversations. So when we get to talk about recovery here, we also will take a step back and we'll talk about addiction and talk about the ugly parts, just so that we can gain a different perspective for some of us that are kind of looking from the outside in and trying to figure out how we should be feeling about maybe our loved ones or our friends that are going through addiction and when they start meeting that road of recovery. So today's topic and today's guest is really special for me and really close to my heart. And I'm absolutely proud of our guest and the progress that he's made in his journey. And I cannot wait for y'all to hear just his amazing words and some of the stories that he has. And we'll also have just like a little moment of reconciliation in here. So let's go. Hi, I'm Cola Shippentower, and this is the Enough is Enough podcast the show where we talk about everything and anything from politics to relationships, from fitness to sex and everything in between. We talk with individuals who have said enough is enough and are ready to speak what's on their hearts. So when I first started this podcast back in 2018, it was started on the basis of creating this platform for people to talk about the controversial and the important topics and give people the space to be able to talk freely and openly about things they probably didn't have the opportunities to before. One of my favorite topics to talk about is recovery and all the ins and outs and the struggles, the obstacles, the triumphs, the wins, all of it. And I I'm a proud member of a community where there's so many people that are starting to take this turn in their own lives and finally saying enough is enough and wanting to basically clean up their act. I mean, I'm an alcoholic and going on seven years sober. And so this topic hits really close to home for me and especially in Indian country. This is a really huge issue and a really huge topic. A lot of people struggle with addiction and struggle with alcoholism and these impulsive behaviors that we have a tendency to have. And before I go too far into it, uh, I'm going to go ahead and bring on a very special guest to me because this is actually a family member of mine, but I'm really excited. I am so proud and ready to just give him the space to talk. So I'm going to go ahead and have Dion give us his introduction. Good morning, guys. Uh, My name's Dion Denny. I'm also an enrolled member of Confederate Tribe, the Umatilla Indian Reservation. My clean day is October 9th, 2019, and I'm very fortunate and filled with gratitude uh, with this opportunity to talk about recovery and share my story and hopefully give some insight to others and a perspective on a better way to live. Um, and uh, yeah, see, I don't really know. <laughs> it's totally okay. This is this is new for a lot of people to be able to talk about this stuff. So, um, you are coming off of celebrating a year of sobriety, and I know it's really important to count the months and the days, and that's really really awesome. What is your exact total today? Uh, let's see. You know, I don't even know the exact total today. I know I just surpassed uh, 500 days. I'm a little over 16 months clean right now. Uh, what's today? 
So I'm like 16 months and 17 days clean. That's awesome. That is amazing. And it puts in perspective first how quickly you can start to forget the exact days. Because as soon as you reach the year, it's almost like, wow, I made it past that point. But I do know that for some people, it's super duper important to count each and every day that they're able to say that they were clean and sober. So that's really awesome. So what had really started this journey for you? When I first uh, when I first got into recovery, I wasn't doing it for the right reasons. I was doing it because I had a court court case hanging over my head. I had probation on me. I had pretrial on me. <clears throat> and so even though I knew within myself, I knew I needed change. I knew I needed help, but I wasn't there yet. I wasn't ready. Um, and so I put on this facade and I went to treatment and uh, did it very half-assed. Didn't necessarily apply myself. Um, still thought, oh, actually, you know, I just, I was one of those ones that, that had the mindset of, I got this. I remember being in, I remember being at NAR residential and still, and I had that mindset of, I got this. And one of my brothers approached me, this older, this older bro, um, we call him two smokes because every, every smoke break, man, he's out there puffing two cigarettes every time. <laughs> but, uh, he pulled me aside. He's like, he's like, I know you feel good. He's like, you know, just be mindful. He's like, you don't got this. You never got this, but with a, you'll never have this, but with a lot of prayer, the 12 steps, working with creator and working with others, you know, you'll have a fighting chance. And that I have it written in one of my, um, literature. I can't remember exactly which one, cause he wrote that down for me too. And so I think of that often because I let, I let myself, I let my ego I let um my false sense of pride getting in the way of my growth and really taken away from myself in the end and I ultimately it ended me back out and I went back out for five months so that five months was like your relapse yeah yeah I was okay. yeah and during that time when I when I first when I was at NARA um like I said I wasn't taking it seriously I was I had court I had pre-trial I had everything I had everything going against me and I still I was still just uh, acting up, and that's when I met uh, my daughter's mother, and I was, uh, they call it fraternizing or whatever, and so I did that, and I mean, that's probably one of the, I mean, it is the most beautiful blessing in my life is having my daughter, so I wouldn't change that, um, so that, you know, in that five months, uh, you know, my daughter's mom, she's she's pregnant we're expecting to have a baby by this time now i'm back home on the res i'm back home on the res and um you know trying to act like i'm doing good and i'm i'm sober and i'm this i'm that you know trying to attend meetings while quietly collecting white key tags you know and the ones uh that don't know a white key tag is is the uh, 24 hours clean I kept uh, I kept collecting those until I didn't want to collect them anymore to the point where I was just like I my pride just got in the way and I d just didn't want to do that anymore so I even though I wasn't clean I wasn't collecting them and uh, yeah so I 
I'm very thankful that I made it back because not everyone does. Mm-hmm. That's, but this was like the start, which a lot of times that's how it, it begins for some people. I can say personally my journey when I was struggling with alcoholism, I got into a lot of legal trouble and I was put on probation. And of course, one of their requirements is that you go to treatment. And like you said, it's very common for us to have this stipulation or something hanging over our head. So we'll do it. So the system will kind of just get off of our back and that we can just get through and be done with it. And so I'll admit, I went to the treatment, I went through the program and everything. And I'm like, this isn't for me. I don't really want to do this. I just know after I'm done talking to this counselor, I'm probably just going to go drink because it was just the check off the box that I needed to get done. But um, it sounds like you really had to dig deep and really find a reason that was going to fit personally for you and encourage you and inspire you and motivate you to quit. So that's really awesome that you were able to find that. And a lot of times it is with the beginning of a new life, ends an old life, basically. Um, you're putting away the partying and the, the drinking and all of that for your daughter, which is amazing. And I find that to be a huge inspiration for a lot of other people because they have their kids as well. So a lot of our listeners are from Indian country and understand the struggles and even the stereotypes a lot of us natives face today. But the other side of the spectrum, we have a lot of listeners that don't understand what life is like for Native Americans who are living on the reservation, who are trying to get off the reservation. So they might not understand what the party scene looks like for us and the struggles with addiction and alcoholism. So if you're comfortable, because I know for some people it's a little triggering to talk about what their life was like before, what what was your journey in addiction looking like? Let's see, growing up, you know, I grew up with a, a single mother. You know, my mother, uh, she uh, she did everything she could for me. She did right by me. The choices I made were of my own. And, you know, her and I, we grew up together. Um, you know, I lost my father when I was very young. I lost my father to suicide when I was three years old. and. You know, so I was raised by my mom and my aunts and my grandmas, my uncles here and there. You know, I didn't really have a positive male role model growing up, um, not until a little bit later in my life. And, you know, we kind of, you know, we grow up around, or I know I did grow up around the uncles and aunties kind of partying and they got their friends and their whatnots that are aunties and, <laughs> aunties and uncles too, you know. And so, you know, growing up around that, um, it's not it's not like it's not like I put any blame on that but it's not like it was also like really uh really looked down upon when I started myself it was kind of like I feel like it was more accepting or like it was almost like, like a rite of passage so in a sense like nephew's here with us he's doing this with us hey and yeah. they'd start handing you stuff to either yeah. drink or try and things like that mm-hmm. exactly and so um, you know, my, my journey that, I don't know, like, my addiction started from a sports injury. And I remember I broke, I broke my collarbone in practice, football practice on a dead play. And a dead play meaning I was like helping my bro up off the ground, extending my hand to help him up. And someone, an upperclassman came behind me and he freaking blew me up and like hit me really hard. I flew forward and landed wrong and Boom. And so 
I was prescribed I was prescribed uh, pain pills and so uh at first you know like I didn't even I wasn't even I was taking them as prescribed I wasn't nothing and then on one on one it was homecoming coming home from my own and they, some of the guys they heard my jacket jiggle and so they asked what that was I told them and and so I like I ended up giving a few out and and then they wanted more than I ended up like selling that whole bottle and we did like that whole bottle on the way home from a football game and that's kind of like where it really where it really all started because I went to the doctor that next day and said I left my I left my jacket in Ione and had all my pills in there they gave me more and when I knew I could do that then I feel like that opened the floodgates because at that same time I was also with this this girl back in high school and both her parents had prescriptions and and I was a I was a young kid who uh who had easy access to that and um I took advantage of it to the fullest and um not only hurting myself but hurting like my schoolmates, my classmates, my friends, my family, my community um even hurting kids in other schools and communities because it didn't happen often but it did happen to where I would supply them as well and it just grew from there because you know it's, it progresses it doesn't it doesn't stay at that point it, you know it just keeps getting worse and worse and so um and that's and that's really like where where it started for me was back in high school and sports and getting just a simple injury on a dead play and like where that led to is crazy how that got introduced into your life on mm-hmm. something that could have been an overall just genuine accident and mm-hmm. then a, a path towards healing for your shoulder kind of turned led into this introduction to a different lifestyle I found it interesting that you brought up almost this it's generational honestly out here on the res is we're working really hard to break down a lot of the stereotypes and the stigmas that native people face i know some people when they think reservation they immediately think of the uncles that are walking on the side of the road carrying cans and going to the next place to get their their 40 but that's not what partying always looks like for a lot of us um I don't think a lot of people at the time knew that I was very much an alcoholic, that I was waking up and drinking right from when I woke up, clear till I went to work and then would finish drinking after work enough to where I passed out and then just woke up and did all over again. And so that isn't really what it looks like all the time for us. And the other part that you had brought up was when we're going to these parties and it, it is almost like this whole init- initiation like oh here's the niece or here's the nephew here come sit with me have a drink or something and it's it's weird because it was something that they were taught as well it was something that they were shown when they were growing up so they think that that's what's supposed to be the norm it's very normalized especially on the reservation um for many of us that's what we we experienced and and then I think it's pretty good for us to give our listeners a little bit of perspective. Uh, what what were your addictions? So I started out as I started on pain pills, and that's that's my main DOC is opiates. But you know, a, an addict and alcoholic like me, and you know, I'm no one special, but you know, I was willing to 
try anything if you had it as as long as I was able to get outside of myself for that a little bit and so you know it started with just regular prescription pain pills and it it progressed into its to its deepest stage <clears throat> to the darkest days was when I was fully addicted to fentanyl mm. um pressed fentanyl pills and to where I know that I'm very lucky to be sitting here right now mm-hmm. to be even alive and to be able to talk or do anything because I know there was probably a, a few instances where uh I probably probably shouldn't have made it you know because I there's there was times when there was times when you know my mom had to stay up overnight to watch me and make sure I didn't drift off mm-hmm. while I was sleeping you know, that's how bad it got yeah and it's crazy because a lot more awareness about fentanyl and the 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 side effects but then also the overall huge effects it could have ultimately le- leading to death is starting to become more uh, prevalent now especially with law enforcement officials first responders and then they're starting to push out a little bit more training for social workers and um starting to distribute more narcan for any sort of responses in case because that's ultimately what's been saving a lot of people's Mm -hmm. lives is when they're found overdosed on these pills essentially and i do kind of want to back up a little bit because i've talked quite a bit in my own personal journey about how i've overcome a lot of different obstacles and um have made it to this point of being a professional fighter and doing the jujitsu stuff and then doing a lot of advocacy work but more I'm trying to reach this space of healing for a lot of people which I think we're really at in Indian country is where a lot of people are starting to turn to get clean but I think there's a lot of moments of reconciliation that need to be have and I'm going to be quite honest I think there's like a moment here for you and I even on a personal level as family members I was talking with my husband about this because we were talking about how far you've come on your journey and I was kind of telling him a little bit more about you and your story and a moment in my mind had come up and I say this because I I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that even though some of us have come a really long ways that I think there's still moments that I'm still trying to come to terms with and make peace with and that I'm very much human I do this work because I've been through experiences and I feel that it's a service to my people to continue doing work like this but I don't want anyone to think that I'm I'm better than the next person or I'm better than everyone else I very much have a lot of uh, things from my past traumatic situations I still try to work through and navigate but being able to have you here and talking with you about addiction I felt it really did open a door for me because when you're really into your addiction and I was still in mine and still having a lot of partying going on, our paths crossed in a way. And I really like want to put it out there for our listeners to understand that I'm extremely sorry and apologetic for any of the enabling that I had given you back in that time, because I didn't understand what we were both going through. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really hard for people when they're in it to see it. But once you grow from it and you get older, then you're like, wow, it could have gotten much worse. So I do apologize for any of the almost encouragement or enabling that I did provide in that time because I didn't see it for what it was at the time. And I think that's what's going to help other people understand what they're doing with their actions could ultimately affect other people. Mm-hmm. And I, I just say that I'm super glad that it never got past any of that. So I don't know if you remember what I'm talking about. You may or may not, but I, I just feel like I need to say that because people need to understand that we have dark mm-hmm. paths. We all do. And Definitely. we're all trying to make peace with them. 
and I appreciate that, you know, and, um, you know, pause is a very real thing in my life. It's very prominent. And for those that don't know, it's post-acute withdrawal symptoms. And it talks about the chemical imbalance in your brain to where, you know, you may remember or don't remember some things. I do not remember, but, you know, I know what matters to me now is that, um, you know, we're, we're putting our best foot forward to keep on, you know, fighting and not giving up and, um, you know, trust in the process and, you know, learning how to do the next right thing and putting in the work and letting creator do the rest. And that's what led us to be here right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's another thing, like talking about re- reconciliation and stuff. And for me, I feel like when you work on building your your uh, conscious contact with your higher power, who I choose to call creator, when you work on building that and, you know, through prayer and meditation, it, it helps it helps you helps you really calm your mind and your spirit and think about what it is that you want and because you know creator already knows he already has his path laid out for you and it's it's up to you to find that and work for it and so like part of that is you know that relationship with creator but also the relationship with yourself and so when you can work to learn how to forgive yourself and not be so hard on yourself for the things that you've done in your past and you know, even not so hard on your present self or when you fall short, because I still fall short all the time as a as a man, as a as a father, as a community member in where I live now. Um, you know, my because I'm still I'm still in a I'm still in an outpatient program. And so, you know, I've been there for a while. And so, you know, I I still I still have to uh, I still get to um, show them show them what's worked what works for me and so you know like I show them all of me but also to keep in mind like um I mean I'm not perfect but like that they're that they're watching and um so like really trying to do I don't know just do good yeah and that's awesome and that's amazing and I know for some people getting into a program really works well for them it's the accountability steps it's the accountability partners it's a system to be able to check in with and know that you're seeing the progress along the way and I know that works really well for a lot of people and it sounds like that's what's worked well for you and some others may have more of a they might be looking for a deeper connection a deeper purpose where they're wanting to ultimately trust creator's plan for their life and say okay I'm going to clean up so what's going to happen after I clean up and so you've kind of tied these two together and ultimately finding this connection with creator and then this program. And earlier you had mentioned NARA. Um, for those that don't know what NARA is, could you give like a brief description on that? So NARA is Native American Rehabilitation Association, I believe is the acronym it stands for. And so NARA is an inpatient program in the Portland area that I had first attended. And, um, you know, I completed and stuff like that but um like I said it was just for the courts I became distracted I wasn't taking it seriously and a week outside of NARA I relapsed and then you know I went back out for I went back out for five months and you know there's no progressing back into it it's right back into the dirt it's right back into the grimy scumbag uh just low down dirty attic 
you know, hurting myself again, hurting my family, um, you know, not, not, not manning up and getting ready for my daughter, none of that stuff. It was so bad to the point of where I was even, you know, my daughter's mother, she was working and I was stealing money out of her purse so I could go get high. And, you know, I thank Creator all the time because, you know, I made it back two months before my daughter was born. And, uh, you know, um, that's why I do everything, you know, with not, not only her, but with my family, with our tribe. I do everything, like, with my name, everything in my heart. I, I take that seriously now before I didn't. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I... Because I ended up, I ended up uh, going to jail... I was all high guy. I was all high guy at the casino. Um, I can only laugh about it now because I've done a lot of work around it. Because before it was, a, it was a lot of, just a lot of bad feelings. But it's not funny. It's something very serious. Uh, you know, I, in my addict mind, I was supposed to go to the movie theater and go watch a movie with my, with my, uh, with my brother and my daughter's mom. And so I had gotten some gotten some pills and, you know, in my mind, I'm like, OK, well, I'm just going to do I'm just going to do all of these because that way she won't know. No one will know if they find they won't find any on me. And in doing that, I did too much. And so I was at the casino overheating. Um, couldn't really like control my myself in in regards to like a like outbursts like I was being loud and like obnoxious in the bathroom at the, at the movie theater and so um like I said I was heating up so I like I took my shirt off and I was like in the sink like trying to cool off because I was really hot and so I was really hot and then I turned around and there was like eight security guards behind me but I was so lost in my own world that I didn't even notice until like I had fully turned around and granted I'm wearing I'm, I'm wearing khakis so you can imagine the hot mess I looked like just probably just soaked and and oh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah so and so I've worked security at the casino, so I can imagine we had a lot of weird calls for people that were doing weird things. So I can imagine what it was like for these guys. So I turn around, and they're like, "Are you all right?" I'm, yeah, man, I'm good. I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just really hot. I'm just really, I'm just really overheating right now, man. And so I like start trying to, start trying to act like I'm okay, trying to gather myself. But they're, they're not letting me go anywhere. They start surrounding me, and that's when I started getting scared. I didn't, like, get aggressive or anything like that, but I wasn't, um... What's the word? Like, when you... Comp no, I can't think of the word. Like, when I listen. Complying? Yeah, I wasn't complying. And so, uh... I wasn't necessarily complying, and then they had two officers come up. They start asking me questions, and, um... They take me out. They take me out front, and I'm still I'm so thankful because the casino was under construction during this time because that means like that whole wing was blocked off, the parking lot, that whole side was like not as active, because otherwise a lot more people would have seen me like that. So they had me go they had me going out and 
um, you know, they had me do a, a, a sobriety test, field test, whatever, and I passed. And the officers were like, what, why'd you guys call us up here? He's fine. Because at that time, I started becoming more, more coherent. And so um, when when they did that, you know, they're getting ready to let me go and things like that. And then here comes my daughter's mom walking up because she was supposed to meet me there. And all this was going on as she's on her way. And so, um, and my my brother's still in the movie theater, sitting there watching a movie while this, is, or watching previews, whatever, as this is all going on. And so, uh, they, she talks to the officer, she probably tells him what I'm on. And so then they tell the paramedics, and like, cause they, they were letting me go at that time, and then, like no you know uh we're gonna we're gonna bring you in for disorderly conduct i was like what like um and so then you know they cuffed me they put me in and you know i I still remember this very vividly like i remember seeing like my daughter's mom like crying with her with my daughter you know she was probably like six seven months pregnant at this time and you know like my only relief was like it was weird because like my relief came from like i was at i was relieved because like i didn't have to worry about hiding anymore i feel like that at that point i was like like this is like i don't have to hide anymore like i'm this like, is now they know they know you know like they know and so so i went to i went to jail for that weekend and you know i was worried about worried about my family, worried about, uh, Rory's mom, and worried about work and stuff, and, and also worried about my PO, because, you know, I'm still on, I'm still on federal probation, and so, when, uh, when I got released, when I got released, I was leaving, I was leaving the jail, walking through the gate, and I turned on my phone, and I called my PO, and I, this was the first time I got honest with anyone. And I called him and I told him, I just gave him the same story that I gave you guys. And I got honest and instead of, instead of helping, you know, like giving me a sanction or a violation or sending me to prison, whatever, I don't know what that would have looked like. Instead of doing all that, he helped me get to where I am today. He helped me find the program I'm a part of, you know, we started looking for resources to where I could go. You know, we um, sent assessments to NARA, to Sundown, to uh, to Medicine Wheel. Medicine Wheel is where I'm at now in outpatient program. And so I went to the halfway house for 12 days. I think this, I think it was like three weeks later after, um, after I got out of jail. So like, I told him, I was like, look, man, I, I need help. Like, I can't, I, I can't, we have to get me out of here ASAP because I'm, I'm not going to stop. I can't stop. Like, I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to hurt someone else or I'm going to end up in prison. Um, so I, I really need help, man. And so I told him, you know, I gave him that story and I told him that I was messing up. And, um, so instead of that, he, he helped me get here. And I know that by being honest is what is what saved me that honesty finally surrendering and finally admitting that I do need help there's so many 
crazy and important points that you have in that story and thank you for sharing it because I had no idea about any of that happening <laughs> I probably can't even remember the time that it did happen but I I really like the story at first I think a lot of people should really understand that when it comes to native people our resiliency is in our sense of humor so the fact that we can usually laugh in probably the most serious of situations is because that's what's become our coping mm-hmm. for a lot of difficult uh, situations but one thing that you pointed out I find really really important was the lack of knowledge as to how I'm assuming tribals were the ones that responded how they should have responded or approached because you said that they were almost ready to let you go and you know in that moment you were having literally like an episode like you're throwing water on yourself and i'm pretty sure like you're if you're wearing khakis it's just a scene and Mm -hmm. there's all these officers they know something's going on because they've seen you this whole time but by the time they get there it's very interesting to me being someone who's very um, adamant about getting into law enforcement that there's just kind of this lack of awareness of the signs of someone potentially like overdosing or in it it's not until they see someone passed out and almost gone that they're like oh they're overdosing we need to call paramedics sort of thing so do you think that there's anything that could be done with law enforcement to become more readily available to be able to respond to calls like this i think uh maybe well with 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 fentanyl it is so it is so crazy and so powerful because to put in to put into perspective it's literally like one or two grains of sand in that in the actual pill that's that's uh actually fentanyl and so you know you're literally playing russian roulette with your life every time you do one and so it's hit or miss every time and so i feel like any kind of any kind of training or any kind of um you know knowledge that they can help build around to be able to identify certain things in those kind of situations would be helpful because I'm very thankful for you know for for Narcan because I almost lost someone very close to me um because of the fentanyl I gave them and um luckily you know as it able to respond very quickly do CPR call the paramedics and they showed up and the cops were there then Narcan saved her life and so um I feel like and it's such it's such a it's such a it's such a hardcore beast and we're already already uh fighting a losing battle I feel like anything and everything to that could help is very helpful and I don't know what that is yet because like I said it's a very hardcore beast and we're all learning and growing together um you know that's a very that's a very uh that's a question I could give definitely give some more thought to because that is a good point like because they were ready to to let me go and things like that and who who knows where I would have been I would have who knows you know like this thankful that I did go to jail that time and I did get honest because I was I was on the brink I was I could feel it I could feel uh I could feel that dark energy and the darkness catching up to me I couldn't put out the fires quick enough around me and in my life and I feel like I knew that because like I said I I did all those pills because oh well they're not if something happens they're not gonna find any on me mm-hmm. you know so like I feel like I knew that within myself and so, um, 
definitely like any kind of even just having conversations because a lot of people don't know don't know about the you know fentanyl or you know there's like patches and stuff like that at the doctor and things like that but um it's a it's very it's a very sick dark one i think having more conversations around addiction and recovery is really really important and it provides like a different perspective and i am not opposed to people getting counseling or going to behavioral health or um a and d classes and treatment i'm definitely not opposed to that but i am a huge advocate for providing spaces for people to really talk about Mm. these things if it's within reason for them obviously everybody's journey is different and it's going to be individualistic um but i think what this does for people especially people that aren't from the res people that have never had any sort of experience with addiction or uh, alcoholism or anything like that is it opens up this new window for them to see through and it kind of goes back to this whole we have this stereotype hanging over our head as native people but they're not understanding the root a lot of a lot of what we're going through uh, you had mentioned earlier that you're raised raised by a single mom and that's something that's very common on the reservation for a lot of kids is to be raised by a single parent or to be raised by a family member which it sounds like in your case a lot of family took over on some of these responsibilities and that's something that's not talked about enough I think for men especially is uh, not validating the fact that they probably didn't have the strong male role model in their life on a consistent basis there may have been cousins or uncles that kind of came in and out um, with different type of influences so I think it's really important for our listeners to know that that's a reality for us on the reservation and as much as we're doing a lot of the really heavy and important work and trying to provide some sort of healing on that spectrum it's still present it's still very much alive and well um I can say that I feel extremely blessed that my boys have a a role model like Tommy um but I also recognize on the other side that not a lot of kids have that so even as a Native American woman I do my best to be a little bit more aware of that um unfortunate circumstance that our people face but I think it's important for people to understand that it's not just oh why don't you just quit why don't you just stop this is cultural and generational trauma we're talking about this is a lot of breaking down that system this is a lot of years and years of trying to uh, heal essentially but um all super duper important important points and uh thank you for sharing that a little bit of a funny story it's a little it's a little funny um what do you think about the state of oregon decriminalizing a lot of these drugs i feel like it's a very dangerous kind of slippery slope um but i mean that's it all i feel like it all definitely hinders on perspective because you asked me that two years ago i would have thought it was the coolest thing ever (laughs) i think we all would have thought it was the best thing okay gonna get in trouble for this i'm kind of on the the side of okay if you're gonna decriminalize it then come out aggressively with options for people Mm -hmm. um i to my understanding, I'm not huge on codes and bills and politics and all that sort of stuff, but my very surface level um, idea in regards to decriminalizing a lot of these drugs is an attempt at requiring people go to treatment. 
Because we've seen this happen where people will get busted with possession or um, being under the influence or whatever and go to jail, come right back out and have the same thing happen again. So I'm wondering if this is the, the state's kind of idea of, okay, instead of sending them to jail, instead of overpopulating our, our little jails here and having people just matrix out and people that don't know what matrix is, that's basically they're overpopulated. They're going to keep the people with the worst type of charges and release the people that just have maybe a possession and their bails maybe set at like 5,000. So if you're locking someone up at say 10 a.m. one morning, they could easily be out by like 5 p.m. that same day. So sending people to jail isn't always going to be the best, but requiring that they go to treatment or trying to find these programs that'll work might play a little different. That's kind of my thoughts on it. I I agree on that too, because, you know, sometimes a a nudge from the judge is very helpful. (laughs) Um, And I can definitely attest to that. Like, like I said, uh, I definitely, yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready at all. I wasn't, and but then, you know, that first time was it? Then I had my daughter, and so I still had, I had a new PO. Man, that my PO man, he was, he's a good dude. He was, he's a very hard ass. He just did it. He, he's good. He can read you. He knew when you were lying. He knew when you're bullshit. I mean, that he told me, he told me too. Don't lie to me, man. Just be honest. Don't lie. <laughs> I had the worst PO. I had a, a tri like tribal court PO, and it was it wasn't a very good experience for me. And I didn't take him seriously at all. And I'm like, keep talking to me like this. I'm probably gonna send my dad your way. Yeah. Which happened on a couple of. I don't recommend that for people that are on probation. But when he was sitting there trying to compare me to his own daughter, who I'd played basketball with years before, I'm kind of looking at him like, okay, this isn't how we're supposed to run this game. But whatever. And then fast forward like 10 years the tables have very much turned in that situation and um my dad still laughs a little bit about like yeah I remember when I saw him here like I would say something it's just POs definitely play a huge role and I don't think they get the good ones don't get enough credit where it's due and he was and he you know like uh I remember you said it wasn't a very pleasant experience or whatever at in the beginning with yours same here I didn't I didn't like them I didn't nothing not until I not until uh you know I was at a place to where I could sit back and kind of turn around and like think of my journey and everything that it took to get here and I'm like man he he helped me mm-hmm. he really did and I part of me part of me uh wants to wants to call him and say thank you but then I'm like is that doing too much? I don't know, but... Uh, I don't think it would be. I think that'd no. be a really cool conversation to have. Yeah, and so my PO I have now, they're, they're, they talk, I guess, and they coordinate, and he goes, yeah, yeah, asks about you all the time, and so he's like, I tell him, you know, you're doing good and stuff, and it's just weird to be, like, in conversations like that in a good light versus what it mm-hmm. was before. Absolutely. And so... There's there's power in being able to look back in order to move forward. I I definitely am huge on that so but we'll make this shift where we we've talked about your addiction what it looked like and kind of your perspective because all too often when it comes to addicts or alcoholics is we are very quick to look from the outside in and make our own judgments but to hear someone's story that's in it and being able to reflect on it and tell your story is super duper important and then you talked about your your relapse and talking about what didn't really work what wasn't working and then finally finding 
something in a program that was going to work for you. So what what is it like at Medicine Wheel? Medicine Wheel. So I remember I remember being in uh, being in the halfway house for like 12 days and eating all my emotions. I remember that that vending machine was my best friend. And I gained like 14 pounds in that 12 days too, because they're not only a vending machine, but they feed you good at that place too. And so I I was calling Medicine Wheel constantly, constantly. You know, I was so desperate. You know, I was granted that gift of desperation that I wanted. Like, I want help so bad. And so I was there for 12 days. Um, you know, I pushed it to the brink. I got I got high the night before I got to the the halfway house. And I remember being scared in there, like, shit, man, they're gonna, they're gonna catch me. They're gonna, they're gonna, uh, you know, they're gonna, whatever, you know, I don't know. I was, I was scared. Um, and so I remember calling, I remember calling, uh, my counselor. She's also like the housing manager. And, you know, I had, I had, uh, pre- predecessors and people that were there before me that, you know, my little brother, I remember he was there. Um, and he was, he was doing good at, you know, at that time in his life. And I was like, you know, I also have another big brother there. And I'm like, he was, you know, he was always a uh, <laughs> crazy guy. He was always taking, taking pics of his UAs and doing burpees and, you know, <laughs> just showing that he was doing good. And I give him shit about that all the time. Like, man, you were taking pictures with your UAs for like a year. And he's like, yeah, man. He's like, there was a lot of times where I was telling my family I was doing good and I wasn't. So that was a way for me to show them that I was. I was like, okay, that's, I respect that. And so, you know, I finally got a hold of my uh, counselor and she's like, okay, we'll be there on Tuesday to get you. And so they came and got me and I had my bags packed up and they came and got me and I'm getting in her car and she's bringing me out there. And, um, you know, for the longest time, because it's an outpatient, Medicine Wheel is an outpatient program that provides, um, supportive housing as you get your life together you know all you have to do is you know stay clean go to groups um and you know that's the bare minimum it's up to you like how much you want to how far you really want to go and how serious you're going to take it and they they give you the freedom to find that you know and to really try to build your connection with creator and they support you with uh with you know mental health with alcohol and drug with uh with um a lot of different areas of help you know they support you getting your your license back get schooling if you got um court cases uh what is it like what do you call it like child kid stuff or custody custody stuff mm-hmm. um and so they help in all those areas but the, one of the most important things is um they also it also helped me uh, get in touch with my cultural side because we have, we have, uh, you know, we're the medicine wheel. You know, you look at your medicine wheel. You know, where are you at? You know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and you know, it's like also like a part of the, the tenth step. You know, we take a daily inventory. How did you go throughout your day? You know, is there any amends you have to make, or how did you carry yourself? Where are you at within yourself? And so, um, you know, that a big part for me that helped healing and a person who I hold very near dear to my heart is her name is uh Tana she's the director there and she she's the mental health person and she really helped me identify some of these feelings and emotions and how to work through them 
and to be mindful of them when they come up. And so that with uh, the cultural side is big, you know, like, you know, I grew up with my grand my grandmother's house. We had a sweat lodge there. I helped my grandpa build it and the structure and everything, but I didn't necessarily practice it when I was here. You know, I lived in the old proj. The longhouse was right around the corner. I wasn't in there much. I always remember grandma telling me, get over there, go help, you know, go learn something, go serve, go dance. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, I didn't really, wasn't really about it then. And so, uh, you know, it helped, you know, I get to, I remember, I still remember being there and the bros kept trying to like get me to sweat because we have one of our homes we have a nice uh, sweat lodge area, and it's right above the creek that runs through Scapoose there, and it's it's a nice, it's a very nice little area. And so I remember I was just going to, like, tend rocks one day because they kept trying to get me to go in there. And, you know, that's a cool thing. You know, like, I, you got, like, genuine support. And, you know, it's, like, genuine support from other natives as well. Like, it's a, it's a, I mean, we do have, you know, other ethnicities in there, but it's definitely a, prominent with natives and so I remember being out there and I can't remember the exact like time or anything like that but uh they were like one round in and I remember I was like okay I'm just I'm just gonna get in there and so like I was I had I was fighting it like I was like no I'm not gonna get in there I don't know what I was fighting or why I was holding on to that so long I don't know what it was but uh I I finally kind of let go like creator and so I got in there and I um, started sweating started building um, building my strength like for me it's like building my mental strength because um, you know it's hot in there and being able to sit with myself and my mind and I think of it as like putting mental calluses on my mind to go deeper into like deeper into thought and to prayer and healing sing louder sing stronger and then by doing that i'm building mental strength that helps me like in my reactions to my life outside of the lodge and like you know uh, using that mental toughness in a lot of different areas and you know medicine has really allowed me the freedom to work through some of my shit um you know at first when i first got there i was I was I was going to groups. I was attending groups and things like that, but I was just like going to groups and going home. Um wasn't really wasn't really doing any kind of work, you know, internally, externally, none of it. I was just kinda this uh depressed, overweight guy that was uh that was just uh clean and sober. I wasn't I was just clean and sober. I wasn't living a life in recovery because there's a difference like when you're living clean versus living a program of recovery because I can be clean. I can go and I can go and uh, stop using, stop drinking and live my life. I can, you know, they call it white knuckling it or I can apply myself and, you know, work the steps and be of service to others and, you know, try to apply myself to, you know, on how I treat myself, how I treat others uh, being mindful of those things, and, um, you know, at, at four months, at, I feel like, I feel like, uh, something, something just kind of really clicked, so it was, 
so it was probably like four months into my into my journey making it back off that relapse and like four months in at medicine wheel and i remember i had gone back from i had gone back to a gone back to see my daughter and her mom and that trip had ended badly and like you know i was i was my daughter was just born we're sitting there and uh it's a we're we're watching the lakers game and it's a it's an emotional time because that was like when kobe had passed and it was like a memorial night kind of thing and i'm sitting there my daughter's on my chest and her mom's sitting next to me and i'm like leaning back and i'm leaning back a little further because like i'm like sad i'm sad and so like i was very depressed and uh yeah i wasn't sure why because this should be a this should be a wonderful time in my life like i'm clean and sober i got my family i'm sitting here watching the game but like i'm sad and like crying inside and like fighting the tears so they don't come out because i don't want her mom to know what's up and so that trip had ended badly and i ended up catching a flight and coming back to coming back home to portland or going back home to portland and so uh when i got back like i knew some changes had to be made because i'm like man dude like you're four months clean like you shouldn't like what's going on like you know granted it's very early but like i knew that something wasn't right because like i was you know i was sad and depressed very overweight um and like i was almost getting ready to seek outside help you know i don't know whether that's like more intensive counseling or um medications i don't know i was almost willing to take that step and so but then you know i really i was like hold on like you know i want to i want to start trying to make some healthy changes and so i did i started i started a I definitely upped my water intake. I started getting my body moving and started watching what I eat. And trust me, that's like one of my biggest struggles today, being a growing up as a fat boy, them, them, them habits die hard, you know? And so like, um, I knew that those changes had to be made though. Cause like, like I said, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be crying when my daughter's on my chest, new, new, fresh, newborn baby and her mom's right there. I got my family. I'm clean and sober in a beautiful home. Um, but there was just something that just wasn't, it was still off. And so, you know, I was, I was just starting to, starting to sweat and sing songs and things like that. And, you know, I was, I was really starting to try attending meetings more and, um, hanging with my brothers more. And, and then, uh, like I said, I started making healthy changes and that's when I walked into a CrossFit gym and, my life has changed forever Mm -hmm. and we see it like we see all of it and this is just awesome because every time you speak there's so many different things i'm just like oh like this is truth this is all like facts bro like this is everything right here um for those that don't know uh what like a sweat house is or a sweat lodge is it's essentially what we have in our culture which is a place for us to go and pray and sing and be together or um when I was when I was growing up, I was told you you shouldn't sweat alone. But um, this is just basically a place for you to what some other people would call like meditate or really dig mm-hmm. deep. Um, and the best way I can describe it, if you've never been in one, it's like going into a steam room, essentially. Mm-hmm. But the difference is a steam room is you can leave whenever you want. Like it's for your 
your um, exercising and workout purposes. So when people go in there and they're just like, oh, it's too hot, like I gotta go. But for us, when we're in the sweat house, that's almost the point that we're wanting to get to because then that's when we're gonna do the heavy work. That's when you're gonna sing harder. That's when you're gonna pray harder. That's when you're gonna re- really start to dig deep and say, what am I trying to work through right now? Like what is going on with my people or what am I, who am I praying for? And it's the, the sweat and that what you had mentioned, like men- mental calluses that you're trying to build up. You're trying to build up essentially your armor in order to be able to conduct yourself outside in the outside world with everything else going on so that kind of puts a little perspective as to what a sweat lodge is sweat house is some of us when we were going in there like you basically be told by aunties like you ain't leaving until i get out and Mm. you got them in there going for like 45 minutes and you're like girl like i'm gonna be shriveled up by the time we try to get out of here the other side of that is, is usually as soon as you get out you either dunk in a creek or a river or you shower off with super duper cold water so it's these two opposite sides of the spectrum that you're hitting super duper Mm. hot almost about to die and then hitting cold where you're trying to like tolerate it almost like it's that cold and freezing um but you're talking about this program that really worked for you at medicine wheel it sounds like a good majority of the work is very culturally based which is what i think is what a lot of um natives are needing which is Mm. going back to our roots going back to our culture going back to what our ancestors have left us all these teachings and all these amazing things has been able to help a lot of people make it through um with recovery and just living and leading a better life and you started leading into what life looks like today for you because you went into crossfit and that's where i think a lot of people started catching up with your journey where they're like holy cow look at Dion look at what he's doing he's been putting up all these posts like he's going to the gym and then they started seeing the weight coming off then they started seeing how happy you are and they start seeing all these changes and uh it's been amazing for me to watch and I've just been like almost just really your biggest cheerleader on the side like he's out here killing it he's doing the thing he's breaking down a lot of these stereotypes he's ending a lot of this trauma that our people have been facing and another thing that you mentioned like I said when you're when you're speaking it's like whoa like you're saying so many important things is all too often we're and not even just in Native American culture this is overall for men in general you're very quick to suppress feelings you'd mentioned it when you're holding your daughter and you're in a really happy moment but then you're really really sad and you didn't want to cry in front of your your daughter's mother Mm -hmm. and I think that's what is kind of hurting a lot of our men is this need to always look strong Mm -hmm. and capable and having it all together which I think is really really unfair for a lot of people um I am very much behind validating my boys' feelings especially in this time with the pandemic, they've been really angry, they've been really frustrated, they've been sad. And I tell them all the time, be mad. Like, if you want to be mad, you want to be frustrated, be all of that. Because a lot of our men growing up, the generations before, weren't told that. They were mm. they were told, get up, stand up, you're strong, you need to chill, like, you're fine, like, brush it off sort of thing. And so I think it's really important that we've reached this um, generation with healing where we're able to validate their feelings. But I'm still very much on the same side of I was raised on tough love. So I'm like, feel it, but let's do something with it. If Mm -hmm. you're going to be mad, let's do something with that. Let's get a workout in. Let's do something uh, to that effect. If you're sad, let's sit down and write something out. Like if you want to get your feelings out right now, let's write it out something like that which I think we need just a little bit more of I'm not saying I'm Mm -hmm. 110% correct but what you were saying definitely resonates with me because all too often we're telling our men like you can't cry you gotta Mm -hmm. be strong but 
what does life look like now for Dion? Like day to day, what do you, what do you got going on? Uh, day to day, it's uh, let's see, a typical day. A typical day, I get up like anything like recovery or physical activity, CrossFit, anything cultural based. Um, you know, my, I learned something from my, uh, sponsor and I think we were actually kind of talking about this on our way here when we were talking about staying busy and, um, being productive and things like that. Um, you know, for the ones that don't know, I was out there for 10 years, you know, I was out there for 10 years thinking I was cool, thinking I was doing something when I wasn't doing shit. Um, besides hurt myself, my family, my community, my tribe, um, things like that. And so now, you know, I, uh, I keep my plate very full because when I got here, my plate didn't have anything on it. And so, you know, like I keep it full so I can hopefully have something to offer, you know, later on down the road. Um, and, you know, it feels good. You know, I can't wait to get up early and, you know, do the things I do today. You know, like I get up, I give thanks to creator, you know, I stretch, I, I get ready for my day and, uh, and lately, you know, recently this last month, I've been listening to uh, an NA uh, an NA meeting called Conscious Contact, and it's on the 11th step. And the 11th step is building our conscious contact with our higher power through prayer and meditation. You know, I kept I kept trying to like go for a run and work out, and then go attend the meeting. But then this meeting is so good, and it's filled with a lot of clean time and a lot of good stuff is said every morning it's it's crazy like every I get something every time and so I was like I can't I, I have to I get you know I need to figure out what I'm gonna do with both and so I started running and working out and listening to that meeting you know just to try to get both of them done and you know I'll I'll uh make breakfast and, you know, as like us natives, we can't just like make breakfast for yourself. So I make breakfast for my brothers, too. You know, so yep. like even though they're like even though they're still sleeping, I'm like, at least it's there when they're up, you know, like <laughs> so I'll make, you know, I'll make breakfast. I'll hydrate. I'll drink my protein shake. And then then I'll have I'm also a part of a native strongman cohort and I meet with them on Tuesdays. So that's the thing I have on Tuesday mornings. And it's really helping me like learn about more about my body and nutrition and um some insight and we had uh god what was her name so uh i can't remember her name but waylon waylon pahona he's he's a good dude he's he's fort mojave um he used to be their executive director he helped build their wellness center down there um he leads our classes and so you know i do that or like monday wednesday friday i have groups from nine to twelve and so I attend those groups or I have that other meeting on on Tuesday mornings and then I uh and then I go to work. I go to work from either like noon to eight or four thirty to eight and I get off of work and then I go hit an evening session at the gym. I I get off and I go I eat, I hydrate and then I lay down and go to bed and I can't wait to wake up and do it early and do it all over again definitely keeping your plate full Mm -hmm. and what i really like in this shift is you're doing the things that most people find really like uncomfortable like you find certain situations uncomfortable but you're like getting comfortable with being uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and i say this because you took one of my turn-up classes you came (laughs) to class and you gave it that good old try at the studio which was really really awesome 
Um, so what has that been like for you in general? You don't have to just talk about the turnip class, but trying new things now. What has that been uh, been like for you? That's everything. That's like how I try to live my life is finding the, you know, finding comfort in the discomfort because that's where the real shit is and that's where the growth, that's where you're going to find the growth. You know, like you're, I myself, you know, I'm going to stumble and I'm going to fall in between those, those little whatever but that's where I get to deploy grit and like push through and like when I get through and I can say you know I did that and so like with you know and then like I use that and I apply it to other areas of my life it's not just it's not just recovery it's not just fitness it's not just making sure I get to work or making sure I get to these meetings it's how I it's how I treat others it's how I uh you know try to lead by example and you know also also uh keeping myself in check that maybe they just need an ear they don't need to i don't need to have all the answers i can just be a brother i can just be a friend and i genuinely care about you and i love you you know i love you and i want you to do well and succeed too you know and so uh i and so like that you know finding comfort in the discomfort there's a saying on the on the door when i go to so the the box i'm a part of crossfit st helens when you walk in it says leave your ego at the door and your sweat on the floor and so like i go in there and i get humbled every time so i like i i like i like that though you gotta like the coaches that'll kick your ass and smile while doing it (laughs) but oh this has been recovery is a heavy topic but it's a really important topic and it really needs to be talked about a lot more addiction needs to be talked about a lot more and because we usually really get deep into these conversations i usually like to end these with some rapid fire so uh, basically ask you a question and try to give me the shortest answer you can but still keep it true to you so the first one do you have any books to recommend to anyone any books let's see probably David Goggins, You Can't Hurt Me. You Can't Hurt Me? Mm-hmm. I'll have to look that one up, too. Mm-hmm. And Netflix and Chill. What is what is your current Netflix watch right now? I don't really watch Netflix. Oh, yeah, I don't really. okay. So if I do watch, if I do watch TV, it's, it's Meat Eater. Okay. Uh, or uh, UFC fights or any kind of documentary or uh, interview with, like, an athlete I look up to. Okay. So that leads into the next question. Who's your least favorite UFC fighter? My least favorite. Um, that's a tough one. I think I don't like to say that because it's like I don't want to hate on him, but it's like man, he's so good. But it's like he's, it's only because he's a little bit of a teacher's pet. But Daniel Cormier, that he's great. I'm not taking away from him. Okay. So we'll leave it at that. See, that's the hardest part is you you can't explain it now. So he said it. So, DC is your least favorite fighter. There you go. Um, Last one is, what's a pet peeve of yours? When I can hear you chew and eat. Oh, gosh, that one bothers me. My my problem is is that when I can hear you chewing and eating, but you still have your mouth closed. Mm. Like, it's this weird, like, throat noise. Like, I just, it just bothers me. It just gets to me. But, you know, to each their own, however you're going to eat. Um, but this has been an amazing conversation, and I've learned so much, and my eyes have been completely open to new perspectives and just a new way to look at recovery and the things that are going on, and especially when it comes to um, opioid and, like, fentanyl addictions mm-hmm. and what we should really be looking at. And 
um, just things for us looking into that type of addiction, what a what you're, what people are facing in that was really eye-opening. And then just an overall new approach, maybe for some, could be an old approach, but just a another approach to recovery. Um, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Any last closing thoughts? Um, you know, when I got here, they told me to get a sponsor, work the steps, be of service to others. Um, you know, that's what it start out, start out, or starts out as. So I would start with that. And, you know, if you're struggling, you know, just know I love you and that reach out and ask for help and that it's going to be okay. It's going to be, you know, just trust the process. Keep doing the next right thing. Man, I love, because it's hard. It's a learning thing. You know, nobody's perfect, but when you keep learning how to try to do that, you know, and then put in the work and let creator do the rest. Absolutely. And thank you again so much. This has been an honor and a privilege to be able to talk to you about your journey and anything, um, resources or Instagram or social media handles. We'll make sure to include in the show notes of this podcast. So thanks again, Dion. Thank you for listening to the Enough is Enough podcast. If you would like more information on our host, guests, or podcast episodes, please visit us on Instagram at EIE541. 